BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Way back in 2005, two brothers set off on a road trip that would save the world and change television. The Elvis Brothers, Presley and Costello. What in the world? (laughs) For 15 seasons and 327 episodes, Supernatural took audiences on a wild ride of family, fate, and faith with a rocking soundtrack and a seriously cool car. But that was then, Bobbo, and this is now. And yes, the show has quote-unquote ended, but we're not quite done with the journey. No, we're not. And that's why we're watching it all over again, or for Rob and me, for the first time, diving deep into every episode of Supernatural with the fine folks who made it. And we're taking you along for the ride. Whether you like it or not. I'm Rob Benedict. I played Chuck Shirley, a.k.a. God. Uh, spoiler! Yeah, it is a bit of a spoiler, but hey, spoilers are fair game here. I'm fine. And I'm Richard Spate Jr., and I played the Trickster, also known as the Archangel Gabriel. And I did a little bit of Loki work in there. Okay, you know we we're running out of time. Okay, well, we'll be talking about the entire series, so whatever we say, accept it. You've been warned. So buckle up and settle in. Because this, my friend, is Supernatural, then and now. Hi, everybody. This is Rob Benedict. And my name is Richard Spate. And we're talking about Season 2, Episode 8. You're damn right we are, Robbie. And it's called Crossroad Blues. Man, who doesn't love the blues? I guess people who don't like the blues, but other people love it. Or Crossroads. A lot of people like Crossroads, too. It's different traffic, you know, when you're trying to get somewhere and you hit a crossroads, you're like, God damn. That's true. What's the thing where you go around, like they have them in England? Bridge? Roundabout. Roundabout. Yeah. Yeah. They they were going to call this Roundabout Blues, (laughs) but then they changed. Were they? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But we'll get into that with fun facts later. But for now, let's get into the summary. 
The brothers go to investigate the death of an architect. Who an architect? They should never die. I know. Death of an architect, by the way, is a great- There's nothing worse. Sounds like oh, a great, great book. <laughs> death of an architect. It's yeah. like murder on the Orient Express. Exactly. Only a lot more boring. Right. So this architect said he was chased by a big, black, vicious dog before dying. They learned that the architect was an overnight success. They investigate a separate sighting of a black dog by a doctor who was missing and presumed dead. Sam Dean learned that the doctor was an overnight success too, and that the doctor and the architect both have a connection to Lloyd's Tavern. Just a sweet tavern out in the middle of nowhere. Sam and Dean find Lloyd's in Mississippi and discover it is at a crossroads. Oh no, meaning like it's that tavern is at, needs to make a decision for its life? Like it's like- Yeah, yeah. It doesn't know. Does it want to go public? Does or it go stay to college or does it little stay Little old Lloyd's. Uh, so it's at a crossroads, <laughs> a site commonly used to make deals with demons. Right. The boys realize that the black dogs are coming to collect souls for people that make deals with demons. Dean recalls Robert Johnson, the legendary blues man who supposedly made a deal with the devil to become the greatest blues man in the early 20th century at a crossroad. Oh. But the brothers believe that the demon is back and is making deals with people, granting their desires in exchange for their souls. Bummer. Sam and Dean followed the clues and tracked down George Darrow, an artist who summoned the demon and did a deal at the crossroads 10 years ago. They learned that after doing the deal with George, the demon stuck around Lloyd's and did more deals. George sends them to Evan Hudson. The boys visit Evan. He believes they are demons coming to collect. The brothers learn that Evan sold his soul to save his wife from cancer. Sam stays back to protect Evan. Dean goes to the crossroads and summons the demon. He captures the demon in a devil's trap. The demon tries to toy with Dean and tells him that his father gave his soul to save him. Oh. And Dean starts to exercise the demon. He does a deal to save Evan in exchange for him to release the demon. Evan is saved. The demon is gone. Sam worries that Dean might do a deal to save dad from hell. Crossroad Blues. Uh, I really liked this episode a lot. I, I liked, I loved the story of Robert Johnson at the Crossroads. There was a movie when we were in the 80s. I know, Steve Vai played Satan. Called Crossroads, where Steve, Steve Vai played Satan and did, uh, and of course, Ralph Macchio played the kid. Right. And uh, anyway, I was always uh, fascinated with this story, and I love the music of Robert Johnson, and I love the way they did it, the flashbacks. Yeah, I really, I really liked it, and and the the interesting the deal with the demon uh, and her revealing to, to to Dean about his dad. What do you what you think? I thought it was great. I thought uh, you know the actor who played Robert Johnson, uh, who we get to interview in this episode, he did a great yeah. job. He was so mm -hmm. uh, grounded and good as uh, Robert Johnson, and I thought that Steve Boyum directed the daylights out of it. I thought it was a, a really interesting episode. To your point, I love the flashback element. I thought they were able to create a different cinematic look for the flashbacks that were really cool uh, and sort of elevated the whole tone of the of the episode. And um, mm -hmm. I thought it was cool. I guess my one my one hang up would be that the Evan, the guy that they like are struggling to save at the end, I didn't find him all that compelling. I thought the artist was cool. Like the artist guy they interviewed and mm -hmm. who sort of said, I made a deal with the devil and I'm going to finish this painting and I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. That guy was cool. And there's kind of a cool tortured mm -hmm. soul storyline. Mm -hmm. I thought the, the person they at, they actually end up saving and doing the deal with the devil for, I didn't find it all that compelling. That was, you know, mm -hmm. the, as a character, not, not necessarily the actor per se, just the right. person they found, the, the written character yeah. itself. I didn't think it was all that compelling for that part. Yeah. 
Well, and I guess I was I was almost anticipating that he was going to be an overnight success at something, but really his his whole thing was just it's not it's not to be a better artist or a better at your job. You're just making a deal. It's like, what do you want more than anything? And what he right. wanted was to save his wife, and and that is an admirable thing. And so, I writing wise, that was a good it was good writing to you know what I mean. They can't, you don't want him to suffer. No, you know it, it made sense that they would sort of go. Well, this guy obviously didn't do it for ego. You know, what I mean, he didn't right. he did it for a, a morally justifiable reason, at least on paper. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's not the cancer part. I don't know, man. Did you did you find it that compelling that that part of it, or maybe it was just me. Yeah, I was. I see what you're saying. I, at the time, it didn't bother me. I was more compelled with the demon with Dean and the way they sort of cut back and forth. And I liked that they were sort of, you know, it was a good play on on you know upping the stakes, you know, and they they salt around them and they're trying to get you know escape right. the demon while he's making the deal. I thought that was well well done. But I see what you mean about. You know, you're not, weren't as compelled with that character. I see your point. I think maybe I'm being overly critical for the sake of a review. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. really think about it that much at the time. I just, in re- right. re- retrospect, thought about it. Right, right. Um, it's a good episode. Solid good, episode the whole good, way through. Good, solid episode. I'm going to go ahead and give it a, uh, I'm going to give it a, a full beard. I'm going to give it a, uh, I'm going to give it a, it, what's, what's called the Benedict Plus. It's okay. a Benedict without the sophisticated gray dotted through it, a classy dye job. Classy so, not, so not a crappy dye job like you did the the patchy Benedict, not that. Right. It's a Benedict Plus, and which is a, f- which is a good solid solid right. episode. It's not a it's not a full beard like right. perfect Chris Stapleton, but it's right. it's solid, man. Yeah, solid through and through. All right. Well, we've got uh, a couple of great interviews in this uh, this podcast. Wait, more than one? We have yeah. more than one interview. Yes. Oh. But let's start. Let's start with the first. Steve Boyum, the director, directed nine episodes of Supernatural, including a couple that I was in. Currently, he's directing a show called The Boys. On Amazon Prime. Great show. Uh, he also directed episodes of Black Sails, Revolution, Hawaii Five-0, Criminal Minds, and Lethal Weapon. Amazing. He, he got his start doing stunt work in films such as Apocalypse Now and The Blues Brothers. Two classics. Two massive classics. Yeah. So excited to talk to him. Please welcome Steve Boyum. So, Steve, for starters, thank you for doing our podcast. Thank you for being here question we ask everybody for the first time we interview them how did you get involved in supernatural how did you come to be on the show you know i think it really came out of my agent just doing what agents are supposed to do quotation marks and uh, (laughs) because i didn't know eric in fact i knew no one on the show and you know i was when, when was this in 2006 right I think it was uh, yeah, quite a while ago. 2007, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so it I, it kind of came out of the blue, you know, and then I came and met the boys uh, as they were teenagers, their 20s. But, uh, <laughs> Emotional <laughs> teenagers. Oh, yeah, and and I think Kim Manners probably, I'm sure, vouched for me when my name came up because Kimmy and I went back to into the 80s when uh, Kim was an AD still. And, you know, we'd been friends for 20 years before I came to do Supernatural, and you know he was kind of the uh, the visual god of that show to begin with. Yeah, so I think that helped. And you did you did stunt work. You you used to do stunt work, and you'd done some acting work as well, right? Yeah, I, I would uh, say my stunt pedigree is is far greater than my acting one. The acting one fell more out of you know, okay, well we want to see the guy fall off the second story balcony and then get up and say something, versus uh, <laughs> going you know we want uh, Shakespeare uh, recited here. Right. But uh, right. yeah, no, I started out. I was an 
actually as a kid, I guess what would be considered today in all three sports, a professional skier, motocross racer, and surfer. So, you know, growing up and bouncing between those sports was kind of a natural entree into the stunt business. But my mother was Irene Dunn stand-in, Jean Tierney stand-in, became an actress in her own right in the 40s, did a couple of war propaganda films during World War II. Her aunt and grandmother were both in the industry, and all of them had, well, her her mother, I mean, my aunt and grandmother, her mother, her mother, in fact, was Otto Preminger's secretary, Gregory Radoff's secretary at Fox. And uh, so I grew up hearing all of these stories, but they had all three long left the business. So as a little kid, you know, I was out making monster movies with my eight millimeter camera that they gave me when I was about seven, eight years old and, you know, trying to splice film together and then do that. But had pretty much given up on it and, you know, was just really into my sports and, you know, there was no one to help me get into the business. But when I was teaching skiing in Mammoth in 1970, 1970, you know, I came across a couple of really famous stunt guys and, you know, that was like, okay, cool. Maybe I can get in this way. In fact, I did and started off, uh, my first movie movie was Rollerball and uh, <laughs> was lucky enough to do Apocalypse Now. I actually did play a formal ro- role in Apocalypse. I'm one of the two surfers that Duvall sends out in the water to surf or fight. That's so wow. amazing. Yeah. That's so, incredible. you know, and, and geez, worked on films like, uh, you know, I'm the guy that gets nailed in the forehead and, uh, Lethal Weapon 2 by Danny Glover, you know, that come in, so I come in and attack him. Right. I guess, I guess that was kind of acting. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, just got to work over the years with so many great directors, cameramen, uh, you know, Tony Scott, one of my heroes. I did, I did a number of films with Tony. What did you do with Tony Scott? I did, um, I did uh, Days of Thunder. Unbelievable. And after that, um, after I'd already launched my directing and I had a transitional period in the 90s when I was a director of photography and director. During that time, when I kind of walked away from the scent business, I got a call and the opportunity to go drive NASCARs at Daytona. So it's like, okay, well, I'll put the directing thing on hold and yeah. go, go drive race cars. And I right. and, uh, got to know Tony on that. He then brings me in on True Romance to do the fight sequence. And now I'm not even thinking about doing stunts anymore. And I think that Tony has reached out to call me to come to work to uh, hang out and smoke cigars with him because I'm a good guy. But in fact, it was that he figured that I was one of the guys from what he knew about me on Days of Thunder that would pretty much do anything and not question it. I doubled James Gandolfini doing the fight with Patricia Arquette. Unbelievable. That's an incredible fight. Of course, having the aerosol spray can with the uh, lighter launched right into my face without anything but fire gel on it, which Tony found greatly amusing. And it oh actually God. worked and didn't burn me up. But uh, so always a big fan of Tony's. And, you know, frankly, I have to confess that when you guys reached out to me to, um, you know, to do the podcast, and I remember the Crossroad Blues to be like really a cool script. And the experience, you know, I thought it was in hindsight, you know, kind of a good show. In fact, I did watch it. I rewatched it in preparation for this. And I was telling Kripke this last night or night before last um, while we were shooting. You know, it was really kind of depressing watching it because I, I now that I look at it, 
it's one of the best things I directed, I think, even to this day. And I, you know, I was telling Crip, I said, I think I might have lost a beat. I think maybe you've got me in my prime <laughs> back then. But, you know, just a, you know, kind of really forward looking kind of style of yeah. filmmaking, which I think drove the crew kind of crazy a little bit because, you know, there was a style that Kim had set, which was incredible. And I used that style, but I kind of brought in some things that I wanted to try with it a little bit. And, um, you know, and I think it pays off. I think it looks like a great supernatural episode and kind of, you know, much like the rest of them. But, you know, looking back on it, there was stuff that I did that I'm going, why aren't I doing that anymore? Just with, ca- <laughs> just with camera placement and everything else. And, well, what do you talk? Let's talk specifically about that because the episode's fresh in your mind. Like, what is it you saw in that episode that you thought, oh, that was me pushing the envelope or that was something unique? Probably more you know, like the cool low angles and, and, you know, Sarah's Leducier is just such an incredible cameraman. Yeah. You know, I think it was just more about kind of the, I was channeling Tony Scott a little bit more Uh, in those days than I do now. And so I was trying to bring in a bit of man on fire kind of vibe to it and mixing long lenses with super wide lenses up close, low angles. Um, You know, Kripke has always been incredible with casting the cast on it was so good and the boys are so good that really no matter what you do it's going to be interesting the writing is great yeah you know i mean i just think stylistically it was a little bit more and and kripke's answer to when i said it was a little bit depressing he goes nah think about you've done so much better since and you're still doing great stuff on this show so maybe it was more about just i thought that looking back 20 years i was a little afraid to watch it thinking okay well sure crap And it really, it really held up. I mean, the, yeah, I think my, you know, a couple of my favorite scenes were certainly the opener in the blues club with, uh, Lamont bird. Yes. Lamont, who was fantastic. And, you know, I really, I talked to him early when we first cast him and it was, you know, I'd put this out on the, um, bullet points for casting to get somebody that could play the guitar. Cause the last thing I wanted to do was a lot of films. You see people, if you, I wanted to really make sure that, you know, I could do shots on his hands while he was acting and it, he's playing. Sure. And I don't know that he was a very um, accomplished guitar player, but I think that he worked really hard at learning how to perform that song because I sent yeah. him the music. Uh, I sent him the recording and I think he did a really good job. And, you know, you could still on network television smoke and having the cigarette just was like really cool. I thought looking back in hindsight, you know, for example, in that stuff, I'm not, you know, I don't spend a lot of time trying to get is, I guess now would feel a little bit dated, but, you know, shooting down through the um, overhead fan, which was kind of an homage to Apocalypse Now in the opening scene with with Sheen in the hotel room. Right. You know, and and just little things like that, that, you know, I still will tend to do the punctuation points like the cigarette hitting the ground, you know, or somebody tapping a desk and, you know, that I really, I still try to do. But uh, yeah, another cool scene that I saw that I liked that I don't do a lot anymore which is shooting through foreground elements, which I think over the years I've kind of felt got a little bit dated with, you know, some of the cop procedural shows. But the scene with George Darrow, when they go to him and he's got the goofer dust by the front, you know, lining the front door, 
that was kind of a full-blown Tony Scott channeling type of coverage. And I thought it really worked. And I, you know, I worked with Jerry Weinick, the production designer. So, you know, I had him build that wall with the slats in it so that I could, you know, do the dolly shots through it. So it was kind of like a pre-designed thinking of how I was going to shoot it before so I could work it out with the art department. And maybe I'm feeling less and less that I do that now that, you know, I mean, in the last 10 years, I, I think at times I try to be a little free form and, you know, let the actors inform me, get in the, the room, rehearse, you know, let the performances kind of inform what I'm doing and not let camera craziness get in the way of the performance. But, you know, there are some scenes that I still go into knowing that there's some cool style things that we can do. But um, also too, you know, one of the, you know, one of the learning experiences I've had was <laughs> about how to shoot Supernatural was when we did Sam with Vincent Gale. I forget the character's name, but he's the one who had the wife who had terminal cancer and he right. sold his soul. That scene was fun because in the way I had thought to do it was to have Sam start laying goofer dust all over and let him create. Well, let me let me put it this way. Jared informed me as soon as we started dealing with goofer dust, he's like, boy, we've dealt with dust and crap like this before and he goes and this can take all day long and it'll never be in the movie so let's start with this much of it here and i'll finish it and i'm like ah the movie's ruined but in fact that was you know (laughs) that's the way to do it you know so even though they were just young 20 somethings they both taught me a lot and uh, I don't know That's if cool. years they got anything from me, but yeah. That's awesome. Um, Very cool. The other scene that I think I really liked a lot was Dean's exorcism with the demon, with Dean's yeah. demon. Uh, she was fantastic. That whole thing I thought was, I liked the circular dolly track around the um, water tower. I remember that was a royal pain in the ass because the circular dolly track and the water tower, the dia- the diameters didn't quite match Oops. and brad key brad creaser was the a camera operator who has become a very dear friend over the years was about at that time of the episode it might have been day six or seven had had about enough of my ass and <laughs> and, and i had had about enough of his ass and <laughs> you know it was like you know i'll never do this show again and <laughs> hilarious <laughs> it was one of those moments and, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, came back again and did the second one the next season and it became a love fest for four years with all these guys. So, yeah. Yeah. This was, this was the first of nine episodes that you directed for the series. Yeah. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. For this episode, which is a great first episode for you. Um, you, you never see the hellhounds. That's something that's sort of recreated with sound and, you know, reactions and, and the effects from the claws. Was that a conversation whether or not you're going to see them? Was there ever talk about using real dogs? No, I I think from the beginning, I don't think Eric ever wanted to see the dogs. You know, certainly the the shadows going through the windows in the first Robert Johnson scene, you know, honestly, it's a great question because I, I don't think ever we intended to have real dogs. I know that when Dean and, and Vince Gale are in the house in this goofer dust circle, we had always envisioned just the claws. And I think that's pretty much, those were Kripke rules from the beginning, I believe. But that, in fact, for the fans that watch the show, how 
silly it can become <laughs> and how much it takes as an actor to go, okay, well, there's nothing in the room, but in fact, what will what's supposed to be in the room is something that's going to kill me and it has to end up being scary. So you're performing the scene and, you know, at times everybody's cracking up in the middle of the shot. Cut, 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 got to go again. You know, I mean, but I, I think Jared at that point, both guys had gotten pretty good at, at knowing the show and knowing what it took to make it, you know, cool and scary and, and everything right. else. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't believe we ever had the dogs in mind. Well, I'll give you a good story that, about Dean, about Jensen. The longer that those guys did the show, and you know, the first few years, you'd lay out a scene that would be easy to cover. Uh, but they'd want to, of course, go, no, I want to go over to this side of the room. There, I'm going to go to that table over there. So you didn't argue with them. It just made you take longer to shoot the scene. By the time I went back in season 10, Jensen's instincts were to go one place in a room. But he quickly looked at me and he goes, but if I go over there, it's just going to take an extra hour. And I said, yeah. And he goes, where do you want me to go? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. the voice of experience at this point, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you now that quickly. both these guys are just incredible filmmakers themselves. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's great that we, when you're actors, and to your point, Jensen and Jared are now creators of their, on their own right. But just looking at them as actors in the show, it's great when they have that awareness. Because then everybody's on the same team. You know what I mean? Like everybody's fighting the same fight. Right. And and I got to tell you, by season three, season four, they they were so good at understanding that show and what the audience expected, what they needed to do to make it look good. You know, and I think that you guys probably know working with them, uh, Richard, especially, you know, when you're on the show, they're going to hang out in their trailers and have fun. And when they you know, you might wait on them a little bit because they're doing something and then they roll out to the set and the crew sits around waiting. The The one thing they always did, and it was you could set a clock by it, when they got to the set, it would be like one take and you'd go, I don't know if you can do it any better than that. Yeah. They, they, they never struggled with the scene. They knew the scene inside and out by the time they shot it. Dialogue for them was nothing. You know, for them to blow a line was so rare or not to remember a word or a line. I always was impressed about that with them. You know, it, like I said, a lot of times you're waiting and you're going, what, you know, I'd love to get out of here. And, but they come out and just nail it every time. I mean, yeah. I always feel like that's your time trade off with them. The time, like they'll take their time coming out, but they'll waste no time shooting the scene. So the versus, job done. versus an actor who's like looking through their sides going, now, where are we? Hold on. Let me, let me review yeah. this real quick. None of that. Uh-uh. Right. They don't even. I, I. I'm pretty sure there was many a time where they didn't have sides in their back pocket. They came out just prepared, ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Through I don't know 15. that they ever referred to sides. Uh, I don't they think might they have did been either. a rehearsal. You know. Yeah. Uh, you never. That, that you're absolutely right. And uh, through until the end, they were that way all the way through season 15. You know, they never really other shows. They might peel off at a certain, you know, start phoning it in. But these guys, they brought it till the end. They did. They did. I mean, it's. Look, it's, um, you know, Kripke and I were just talking about the the viewership data on the show. And, you know, I mean, it's astronomical. I think it's still, Kripp was saying that, you know, to this day, it's still in like the top 10 of minutes of broadcast and eyeballs on it. So now listen, when you're in this episode of the show, there's, you know, we're doing flashbacks, right? So this is a dumb question, maybe, but 
I don't know how monitors and everything worked back then. Were you setting a LUT or a look back then for the flashbacks that you'd be able to see on a monitor? Or no. was it not? So you couldn't no. see it in the monitor? No, Sarah's, you know, Sarah's, as you know, directing, Sarah's rides in the van with you to work every day. And, you know, he had presupposed looks. You know, we talked about looks. But no, I, you know, that was well before, I think, uh, I'm trying to think of how they colored then. It, it might have, I mean, it was on film. So film, film, you, know, right? you were yeah. doing it in the lab and then sitting down with a colorist at the end working on a, you know, negative and film. So, no, you, what we saw then in those days was a pretty rudimentary video playback or video uh, assist. Certainly not what we have now. Now it's like sitting in your living room watching a high def television on the set. But, um, you know, Serge, I think, had looks that he wanted. And we'd all, always talked, I think Serge and I talked about, you know, the flashbacks having a very um, washed out, desaturated vibe to them. In fact, I, I'm sure of that. You know, we talked about the look of the show as we were as we were doing it. But I think we established what we wanted it to look like. But looking at, you know, when you're working in the editing room on that show now, you're looking at just one light daily transfer. Right. So you didn't know, like, I suppose, aside from just a desaturation, it had a completely different look, almost like there were filters that were making the lights bleed differently and things like that. And and the, I, I imagine that's all stuff that you guys game planned in advance of doing. Well, yeah, absolutely. Fight. I mean, anything that I really think the only thing we did was desat it. And frankly, I, I think that now that I'm recalling, I think we might even have talked about, you know, are these flashbacks black and white? And, you know, I mean, that was kind of the look we were trying to, I think, go for. Right. But give it a bit of, um, you know, some warm density to it. But, you know, pretty desatted. So That's really awesome. Yeah, it was a good looking show. And I mean, even to this day, like I said, watching it the other weekend, it, it just was um it looks so good. Yeah. And we, we've had the same experience going back and, and rewatching them, you know, for this podcast. Like you, you go, oh, well, it, you know, it's 2007, 2006, 2007, and it looks great. It's a good looking show. And, yeah, it holds you know, up really well. It really I, holds up. You know, I keep thinking the, it must have been the coolest looking thing on that network at the time. Like yeah. it's just so much, so much very, denser and it's in its very cinematic contrast and everything. It's just great. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, you know, honestly, there, there's, you know, so many shows now that are the genre on television. And I, I don't know that they look better or doing anything more groundbreaking than what Supernatural provided. I think that, you know, not that anybody wants to admit it in the, uh, you know, in the cocktail class of film that they actually are relying upon a little CW show for inspiration. Right. I, I suspect they are. I mean, I don't know that anybody that has seen Supernatural that that didn't think it was the coolest thing. And still to this day, you know, I mean, yeah. it was, and I'm so, I, I, I don't know. I, I hope that they're um, able to, with Jensen's new show, with the um, Winchesters, with the, with the Winchesters, with the prequel, that they're able to even outdo Supernatural, you know, and make it for a new audience and make it as cool. But uh, well, that's a high bar, but I certainly hope they're able to at least get. The, I mean, Supernatural. I mean, I do think there's a little bit of a lightning in the bottle effect with, with Supernatural in terms of Jared and Jensen being who they are, Kripke's vision being what it is, and then the look being what it was and the freedom they had to do what they had to do. I can only hope they're able to to emulate that in some capacity in this next next run. That's a hell of a task. 
Yeah, it's a, it was a really good pilot. I read the pilot. Actually, Jensen and Daniil talked to me about doing the pilot, but they uh, they went a different direction. But, uh, you know, looking at it and, and trying to envision how I would shoot that and try to make it as cool as Supernatural. Uh, so it, it wasn't just a casual read, but it's a it ha- runs a risk of being a really good show. <laughs> um, good you know and with jensen at you know kind of in the and i think he's really from what uh you know Krippy's been telling me that he really is involved and uh you know i think he's such a smart filmmaker now that you know the thing should be pretty damn good you know yep so that's I'm, great i'm hoping too yeah and you know what was what also was really kind of cool and inspiring about this whole show was this particular episode was this the legend and the the myth around robert johnson yeah and i think that before i did the show i think i did a lot of research on on robert johnson and kind of looked at how a lot of the mythology about him and trading off his soul uh you know as i recall i think that you know when he was a kid he um he'd moved from he was born in mississippi and it ended up in memphis and then came back to mississippi robinsonville or something and you know as a kid he was a pretty good harmonica player. And I think that there was, you know, some blues musician that was relatively famous that was in that town and, and knew him, you know, as a kid who was a, a you know, he, I think he called him a pretty good harmonica player, mouth harp player, but an adequate guitar player. And then he disappears. And I think that's where some of the mythology comes in. God, he ends up with, God, he ends up in, in some other, in, in another town in Mississippi and I guess he's running with um, another r- relatively famous blues guitar player that would go and pra- rehearse practice in graveyards. Then he comes back to Robinsonville and he's a really good guitar player. So, you know, it's stuff like that that opens up the mythology. And I think that his his first wife that Robert Johnson had, she died in childbirth, but her parents accused him of, you know, bringing about this whole thing because he was cursed by the devil for not playing spiritual music and playing blues. You know, I mean, so there was so much mythology around this guy that, you know, that with a great script and and who wrote this one? Sarah Gamble? Yes, Sarah Gamble. We're getting Sarah Gamble. No, but the script was so good. And then when you 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 looked at the, you know, the Robert Johnson story and just listened to the music, you know, I mean, Eric Clapton, um, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, Keith Richards, you know, all of them in different interviews have said that Robert Johnson was bar none the best blues guitar player. I mean, he influenced so much of modern music and and modern blues, especially for the the English, you know, the British Revolution, pop revolution, yeah. back Beatles. You know, I think Beatles, George Harrison even was probably a fan, but uh, and John Lennon. But, uh, you know, there was so much mythology around him that you had the supernatural mythology that Kripke had created. And it was just a lucky episode to get for the first one I did. Yeah. Uh, Because it had the built in, you know, the built in supernatural and then the whole myth around the Robert Johnson. Backstory. Yeah. You know, and I don't even remember. There was an interesting scene that kind of took me by surprise when the wife of Vincent Gale when she's leaving to go pick the kids up or go to the market and you know it's a sweet scene and she's asking him what's wrong and he's been hearing the sounds of the dogs outside as he's working in his office and 
when she walks away and then turns back to him and her face contorts. I didn't yeah. remember that at all. It kind of made me start a little bit. It, that's watching. a good, legit scare in that episode. Yeah. You know, you did not see that one coming. You don't yeah. see it coming. And, you know, I mean, that was early on and, you know, you know, visual effects. Now you can do total face replacements on people, you know, on actors, you know, stuff has gotten so rudimentary for them. I know it's complicated still, but then all of this stuff was really not being done a lot. So that was like, how did we do that? I think also, I think it was all just all she had to do was cock her head and open her mouth. Yeah. I got to love how cutting edge, not only was supernatural in its look, but in its execution of things like visual effects, it was just so cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, well, thank Steve, you so thank much you for being a part so of this. Much. I mean, yeah, you, you got nine more or eight more under your belt to talk to us about. So we're hoping you'll come back and have this conversation again when your next one pops up. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, All thanks right. so much, Steve. This was awesome. Really appreciate All it. Right, cheers. Tell Kripke we say hey. I will. Bye. Ahoy. Rich Spade here. Hope you're enjoying the episode. But we got to pull over for a second for some messages. You can sense it calling out to you. New reality seeks you. Join the journey to save Anomaly. Place where sound is magic. The only way to enter the world is by looking inward. Along the way, you'll learn potions, chants, and enchantments that will help you both in that reality and yours. So, answer the call and let your campaign begin. Featuring the voices of Ruth Connell from Supernatural and Dead Boy Detectives. There are ordeals ahead, yet with guidance, you will face them head on without fear. Todd Stashwick from Star Trek Picard and 12 Monkeys. When the time arrives, wherever your journey takes you, be there with no attachments. And R&B singer N.C. Gray. There are worlds, realms, dimensions, and realities beyond yours. Anomaly is a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology. The goal of guided fantasy role-playing meditations are to help you cultivate a sense of wonder, curiosity, balance and joy in your inner world. Role-playing meditation is a form of escapism and relaxation, as well as a creative outlet for the imagination. The first campaign is an introduction to the world of Anomaly, its lands, magic and secrets. In the eight chapters, you'll stretch your imagination, learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, relieve stress and stop racing thoughts. Your true self will emerge, allowing you to manage your goals and dreams without confusion, distrust or self-doubt. You can find it on Spotify, Apple and wherever you listen to podcasts. Or visit SeekAnomaly.com to learn more. Anomaly spelled with an I-E, not a Y. Seek Anomaly. Hear its magic. Thanks for listening. 
Now, back to the episode. That was great. So great to talk to Steve. Legend, man. He's a, he's, a, he's been around forever. He's yeah. done everything. What yeah. hasn't he done? Name one thing he hasn't done. I can't. Exactly. So nice. And next up, um, we have one of my favorite characters in the episode. Lamont Bird played Robert Johnson in the episode. And he's so, a, so good. Yeah. He's appeared in uh, 911, This Is Us, Bones, Mad Men, and Grey's Anatomy. Couple of hit shows on that roster right there, Some hit shows, Robert. yeah. And today, he's on the Supernatural Then and Now podcast. Welcome, Lamont Bird. We're talking about Crossroads, and we're so fortunate to have Lamond on the show. Just jumping into it, did you know much about Robert Johnson and that whole story? You know, I knew a lot about Robert Johnson. You know, it's so interesting. When I got the call for the audition, it made all the sense in the world. I'm, I'm a huge blues fan, have always been. You know, I love music, everything from, you know, Max Richter to Nardo Wick. I mean, I listen to I listen to the gamut of music, you know? Right. Um, That's great. And had been really in a deep blues phase at the time. So when I got the call saying that it was for specifically Robert Johnson, morning, day and night, I was playing his music like crazy. That's crazy. Uh, That's ironic. When I got the call, I I knew, not to sound overconfident, but I said, oh, I'm going to book this. This is mine, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm a huge uh, guitar player, but I knew a few blues riffs. And uh, and I said, you know, if I just work my ass off and prep, you know, like I always do, you know, the spirit of the blues will carry me the rest of the way through, and it sure enough did. Well, you kind of you kind of answered a question that I was going to ask you, which is about your guitar playing, because in the few shots you know they have of your hands, it looks like a guy who knows how to play guitar. Yeah. Uh, now yeah. I didn't know if they just taught you like one move and you could fool us with it, or if you knew your way around the neck. It seemed like you do a little bit. You know that that's that's a great question. Actually, Warner Brothers sixteen years ago was Warner Brothers. Right? Warner Brothers, yes. Yeah. Paid was- for a guitar. Yeah, right. Paid for a guitar teacher to teach me the riff, the song that actually opens up the episode. That's so awesome. Even though, yeah. So there's a little bit of editing that's, you know, every time I watch, I'm like, oh, that's the fingers look a little off. But believe it or not, I'm playing the song. That's season two preparation right there, Dude, Rich. Rob. OK, so Rob had Rob. Rob is a musician and Rob played a song in an episode years later, like season 13 or 14. Rob, they wouldn't have taught you to play that song. Oh, man. If you I was on my own. <laughs> they <laughs> never even asked me if I could play it. They're just like... Oh, my God. Literally, Lamont, that is like you were there during the high times, man. Like, <laughs> guitar it, coach. It, it, was, it, was a, awesome. it was a good deal. I, I actually took it a step further because, you know, like I said, I'm a huge blues fan. And just understanding what it meant to be a blues man blues player in those days. I mean, you were always on the move town to town, uh, making money from street corners to juke joints. So I would literally take my guitar to, you know, the Venice, uh, Venice Beach area, Marina del Rey, Santa Monica area with my fedora. And I would sit down and I would practice every little bit of that song and any of the riff that I knew. And individuals would pass by and listen and drop a couple of bucks in there sometimes. I mean, this was, you know, pre-inflation, obviously. So, so, uh, so, Wow. But it was it was a really interesting experience. You're a wow. genius. Talk about You're figuring genius. how to monetize a role. That was <laughs> I gotta do that, right? dance, like that. Yeah. Sometimes I do monologues on the corner just with a hat out. I get I I take my guitar and people give me money to go away. It's uh <laughs> <laughs> well they do have the Robert Johnson starting guy. I mean, not not they didn't give him money to go away, but you know, he he was not the kind of blues player 
you know, guitarist that he that he was obviously starting out and, and Sunhouse and, and uh, Willie Brown basically would shoo him away, you know, because he just right. he sounded so horrible, according to to some historians. OK, wow. I'm going to ask a question that, you know, you, they say never ask a question you don't know the answer to. But I don't know the answer to this one. Robbie, I don't know if you know the answer to this one. But why is this legend so persistent about Robert Johnson and making a deal with the devil to cross it? Uh, just the song itself? Or is it bigger than that? I think the le- I think just the legend itself. I mean, the fact that, and I'll let Lamont answer, but I, I, to, in my opinion, it's, I think it's it, like he, he wrote songs about this. He actually got really good. He has this, he, the music is recorded. It sounds amazing. It just, it feels like the legend is real. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I think definitely part of it, you know, is that, uh, but, you know, just to, as you say, unpack it a little bit more, um, because he he was it took him a year i think a year and a half roughly for him according to some individuals like you know the sun houses and and other musicians who were around at the time to become this phenomenal phenomenal guitarist and uh as legend would, would say he would go to graveyards and play because i guess that was what his mentor told him and i can't remember whether it was his uncle or just uh, a family friend who kind of helped him along with learning the guitar said it was best to play at the in the graveyard at night because the spirits will come to assist you with, you know, learning how to play it, you know? Um, and Note to self, don't play in a graveyard at night. Good Lord. Yeah, I don't want yeah. the spirits showing up. Bye spirits. <laughs> he did. He did exactly that. But also wow. he, I guess, according to what I remember, he had so much tragedy in his life that he kind of took on the persona of, of having made a deal with the devil as it pertains to losing a child and being uh, dejected for playing the devil's music. Right. Uh, I, you know, you uh, do such a terrific job in this episode. I love the work that you do in this. And it's, you know, a lot of times if s- someone comes in and, they, and they've got a couple of emotional scenes, you know, it, it can go either way with some of the guest actors. You never know. And I, they, this show does such a great job of getting great guest stars. And you, honestly, it's, it really is the, the through line of this episode. It's the, the spirit of this episode. And you could tell that you prepared and you were meant to play the role. Did, when you do scenes like like dying, that, that must have been really hard. Like, what went through that for you? That is a great question. So so Steve Steve Boyum directed the episode. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, God, I was hoping you asked that question. I remember we were coming up on that scene and the AD came, not, you know, gave the warning. And I said, hey, can you, can you ask... Steve to come to the trailer. I, you know, I just wanted to kind of talk for a minute. And I wanted to talk through that dying scene because I had a lot of ideas about it, how traumatic to portray it. And 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 of course I had my internal dialogue going as it pertains to what, what my character was, was dealing with. So I remember Steve knocking the door, open up the door, and I said, Hey, I just wanted to talk about this dying scene. And I said, I kind of wanted to see how how you envisioned it. And before I could even finish that, he said, How do you see it? And then before I could finish that, he said, How do you see it is how I see it. And I remember that, like, that was such a moment for me as an actor, because a lot of times, you know, of course, we, we prepare the hell out of things, right? And we show up, and as guest stars, we, we go, we on time, hit our marks, do the work, and then we're out of there, you know? But I felt such a part of, of the episode, and also I felt a huge responsibility to, to bring justice to, to Robert Johnson's legacy. And to have a director willing to play like that, man, it was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, I, I really saw it as almost a possession and internal feeding that's great directing, eh, Rich? That speaks volumes to Steve Boyum. I mean, Steve Boyum uh, is a legend. The man's been working nonstop since since I was in knee pants and Rob was 40. But the thing about this interesting is... <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> this is what we do, Lamont. It's okay. We're 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 friends. Um, I like Lamont. I like Lamont. <laughs> goes, wow, wow. <laughs> Listen, I'm a huge fan of you guys. So you don't you don't understand how many how many webisodes, podcasts, episodes. <laughs> Uh, that I've listened to, and I'm always looking forward to the outtakes at the end. <laughs> but but back to the Steve thing. Steve is a legend. I mean, he's a he's considered a bit of a cowboy in that he's really good with stunt stuff. He was a PD on on uh, Black Sails. You know, he comes from the stunt world into directing. And the reason why I bring that up is it's cool because I've never been directed by him. So you, Lamond, you're talking about a director I've never worked with. Uh, Rob, have you? Yeah, twice. Okay, I, I directed a couple of my episodes. Okay, yeah, so you know, you know already. But like to me, that's a really cool. To the point that we were saying about TV, about being a guest star. Not every TV director is actor friendly. Yeah. A lot of times, they're about they've got their battle plan, and that's their battle plan. That's I'm not criticizing them. That's just how they approach their work. It's that's nice right. that Steve was not that guy in that moment because it seems like that moment deserved the kind of director that Steve revealed himself to be a an actor friendly director. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you left out Apocalypse Now. He was also, he did Sunset Apocalypse Now, which is one of my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Favorite wow. Yeah. In one of the coolest scenes ever. I mean, like the surfing stuff. You know, right. you're like, right. a legend. Wow, that's amazing. Why, did Rich, did we, uh, do you think that he knew? Um, Tom Wright? Tom Wright? I can't imagine they, I, I, whether they knew each other from that or something else, I can't imagine those two did not cross paths. But I would wonder, because yeah. apparently, Tom Wright, who also directed a lot of Supernaturals, uh, I believe, unless I'm stating his resume wrong, was a, was one of the camera operators uh, or or assistant directors or second unit director or something on Apocalypse Now as well. Wow. So, well, supposedly he shot from the helicopter. He shot that scene. The, the that's what I thought. I think he shot the surfers. In the morning, that yeah. scene. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is. It is. Um, you continue to keep this streak going, Lamond, as Rob and I make our way through these episodes of being a really a level guest. I mean, you're not a guest star actor, you're an actor, but in this guest star role, you were so good. And what the thing I thought was your strongest, your best secret weapon was your ability to to be silent. There were moments of intensity where it wasn't dialogue driven, that it was like thought driven or reaction driven. That was, and I thought you just did such a great job of bringing a cinematic uh, weight to the character that could have easily been sort of blown off and made light in a TV way. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I definitely wanted to to do it justice. So, so I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time prepping for that. I mean, you know, I just, my love for the blues, my love for Robert Johnson, obviously I had, you know, watched some of the episodes uh, prior to mm-hmm. the show. So I wanted to make sure that I, that I showed up prepared and, and doing my very best. And it, and it's, you guys invited me here, which I appreciate. So it, it obviously is lasting in some way. And, it is, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we were talking about Steve Boyum. If you don't mind fo- me following up something on that, sure. that we know that moment. What was the rest of your experience like working with Steve? Did anything stand out about that experience? That was probably, I mean, the whole experience was amazing. But that was a moment to me that was that was just defining because as an actor, I had been in town for five years, I think, something like that. You know, I just, you know, this was like a big, a big deal. I was being traveled somewhere to play this role that they were looking for this character, this an actor to portray this, this individual for a long time, I guess, from what I understand. So, so that was, I think, one of the, one of the key moments. Cause I kind of felt like I grew up a little bit at that mm-hmm. moment as an actor on set. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But as far as working with him, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a seamless experience, you know, the, the, the entire crew and, and cast and, uh, 
you know, uh, every everyone was was fantastic. You know, from that's great. E, yeah. Uh, did you get to meet uh, Jensen and Jared at all? I did not. No, I felt like I was doing a different movie in that in that sense. Yeah. Oh, trippy! Yeah. I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 It, it was, you know, and it was shot like almost like a different movie. I mean, the coloring, the color was a little different, and uh, they, you know, the look of it was great. Your period costumes were were great. Too. Was that a fun? That must have been a fun fitting. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was an experience, man. It was one of my one of my most coveted and 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 yeah. loved working experiences as an actor. That's awesome. You can just, you know, been in Canada. I grew up in Detroit, so so I've always had a love for Canada. Going over to Windsor as a kid. Then, you know, once I got into high school, went over there because you could be, you know, 17. And, you know, as I remember, I could be wrong and, and get a beer over there or. No, I think you're right. I yeah, think you're right. right. Yeah, something like that. So I spent a lot of time going, going under the tunnel and over the bridge to Canada. So here's a chance to go back on the, on the West Coast or the left coast and, and, uh, yeah. and do what I love to do. I mean, it was, it, was, it was an amazing experience, man. Everything was just like top notch, you know. It, it, I bet it was fun to go over there for something other than just the beer. Yeah, 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 and uh, they had they, they had just opened up a casino over there in Windsor, and, and there was oh, uh, yeah. uh, gentleman clubs and things of that sort. That individuals yeah. would go. I'm not saying me, but individuals would go over there. Sure, sure, sure. People, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they had definitely. It's uh, uh, a lot to do, a lot to get in trouble doing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but think that uh, Jerry Wanick, the the production designer of the show, must have had a good time on your episode because he's a music fanatic as well. And if you're given the opportunity to mm -hmm. design, like where's Robert Johnson playing? Oh, that's a, mm -hmm. that's a great assignment for somebody mm -hmm. who loves music as much as he does. And that must've really mm -hmm. walking into that space must've helped you solidify all the research you've done. Cause here you are in the costume and it does matter. I know we all know as actors, like you put on the hat and the suit, it informs your body. You know, it tells a story and helps you tell your story even better. 100%. And then that's that. I felt like there was a time where I used to wear black blacked out, but but I was so in tune with 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 what was in front of me, and that's a, a, a testament and a credit to you know to the production designer, to you know to the costume, to everyone. Because when when I walked in that juke joint, I mean, it was it was extremely authentic. You know, it just it had I was back in nineteen you know nineteen nineteen thirties. I mean, it was it was so authentic, and the casting, you know, even the background casting was. Yeah. I looked out in that audience, you know, I'm playing there and it, you transport it. Uh -huh. right. So it was amazing. Yeah. I, I, they made it very easy to settle into that character, to settle into that, into Robert Johnson and, yeah. uh, and, and allow for the work that, you know, the work in the writing, you know, to, to come to life. That's great, man. Well, it is, it is inspired work and, uh, and it, what a great interview this is. You're a great guy and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. I have a one button question that's off topic a little bit, but you yeah. may have the coolest name I've ever seen or heard. Is that is that oh, is that your Lamont birthday, Lamont Bird? Is that your birth name? You know, here's a fun fact for you guys. My 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 birth name is actually just L A M O N D. So so I did make a change. I added the E for change it to the like the world. I mean, Lamont is uh, the world Definitely. in French. That's awesome. Yeah. I know. I love that. It was so cool. And I also love that Bird is spelled like. The birds is yeah. B Y R D. It's super yeah. cool. That is the actual birthday. That's the, like that's the bird family in Ozark. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Party bird. Lamont, this has been so great. Such a great interview. You're so great on the show and a delightful actor to talk to. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you all so much for having me. Continue success to yours, uh, to yours podcast. I will be listening. Thanks. And uh, hats off to you all. We'll be right back. 
Hey guys, it's Rob. So check this out. I'm very pleased to announce that we have a new super sponsor. That's right. Marvel Strike Force. So Marvel, the one and only Marvel, has a mobile game. And it's a comic book fan's dream. Marvel Strike Force, is, it's a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. So, okay, so your goal is to power up your favorite characters and you complete missions and then you unlock fun stuff like gear and other resources and then you beat other players in a PvP, player versus player mode, such as Alliance War or Real-Time Arena. So as we, as I record this, they're enjoying their six-year anniversary. So you know what that means, free stuff. Free stuff, just for signing up via the unique link in the description. So the anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. And if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. So make sure you log in every day, each week, you take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code for every new user, so please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. All right. Thanks once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc thanks for listening now back to the episode what a nice guy and what a talented fella sweetheart yeah Really, really enjoyed talking to him. Put a lot of work into that uh, role and he, and he really paid off. Yeah. And you could tell. You could tell. He was dialed in. So how great, too. I love that hearing that story that he like is a big fan of Robert Johnson. He was destined to play that role. He definitely seemed like he felt like it was his calling. You know? Yeah. All right. Let's get into the mythology of this episode. Mythology. 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 No, mythology. <laughs> Robert Johnson was an actual blues man born in 1911. Did you know that he spent most of his time in Memphis, Helena, and the Mississippi Delta? I knew about Memphis and Mississippi Delta. I didn't know Helena. Me neither. Helena. Montana? Mississippi? I mean, Helena, Montana? I don't know. <laughs> Helena. Where is Hel- Helena, Helena. Or Helena Handbasket? Maybe, hand just, maybe <laughs> he just someone he knew named Helena. Wouldn't that be interesting if, if your name was Helena and your last name was Handbasket? Yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah. There is a great deal of lore and mythology surrounding Robert Johnson's Faustian deal. Some say it was a deal with the devil. Others, a deal with a demon. Others speculate 
It was a deal with an African trickster god named Legba. Some even say the location wasn't a crossroads, but a roundabout. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, But actually a graveyard. Right, right. And one thing they all have in common is that Robert Johnson traded his soul to become the greatest blues man. And he seemingly mastered the guitar in an extremely short period of time. Unlike me, who's still whittling away at Sweet Home Alabama uh, 25 years later. That's right. Johnson didn't really get to enjoy fame, though. His music really wasn't recognized until after his death. He should have been more specific in his deal with the devil. That's right. It's his fault for not reading the fine print. That might be true. Robert Johnson died in 1938 at the age of 27 under mysterious circumstances. No cause of death is listed on his death certificate. The site of his grave is unknown. Three possible grave markers are located in Greenwood, Mississippi. I think it's funny that you go to the coroner. Hey, so how'd he die? You've been, uh, you know, examining him for for days. What, what's what's the answer? And the answer is, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even put a guess down. Like, uh, uh toenail, uh, uh, hung, hang, hang nail. Yeah. Yeah, he's whatever. Nothing. <laughs> Not even unknown, just like, eh, yeah, blank. Yeah. That guy, not, maybe not great at his job, that guy. Yeah, we're not uh, talking about him. He didn't make a deal with the devil to be the best coroner, clearly. Yeah. But the story does, it gives me kind of goosebumps, this whole story. I, the, the, you know, you were asking Lamond about it. Why is it such a popular myth? And, you know, there's there's still just so, so much uh, surrounding it that's unknown that makes it, I think that's why it, you know, gives it this this myth. Yeah. Such no, mysterious. By the way, did you know this, Rob? Yes. This little piece of uh, yeah. mythology or trivia, I would say. I did. Because you're a musician, you should know this. Yes. I don't know how old you are. I, I know. But if you're under 27, yeah. you should be concerned because right. there have been a lot of musicians, well-known uh-huh. ones, who died at 27. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and I don't know if you're under 27, Rob, but potentially you. Wow. Thank you. Are you, are you 27? First of all, thank you. But no. You're welcome. But theoretically, if you were, my point is, if you were 26, if you were 26, right, your life hangs in the balance. True, true. But I'm not, so I shouldn't be worried. However, how fascinating is that? All That's those. Really uh, yeah, I always thought it was uh, it was wild too that around the same time, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison passed away, and they all of uh, their names start with a J. Oh, trippy. And Brian Jones couldn't have been that far behind. He was 1969. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, man, he's got a J in there. Mm-hmm. And Jert. Jobane <laughs> and Jamie Winejouse. Um, <laughs> all right, it's time for fun facts. Fun facts. Fun facts. The motel Dr. Sylvia Perlman is hiding at is the Bakersville Motel, a reference to the Sherlock Holmes story, The Hounds of Baskervilles, which features a violent, supposedly supernatural dog. You know, I was going to ask, uh, and I, I just remembered is. I'm guessing the song Black Dog by Led Zeppelin must be tied into all of this as well. Well, I know they're big on the whole Lord of the Rings stuff and, you know, they do a lot of that kind of Well, yeah, but they're also they're really bearing. big. They 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 heavily heavily borrowed some say stole from the old blues artists, right? And and there're a lot of oh. old blues songs about this kind of thing. So Right. I almost wonder if if they stole this idea, you know. Got the, you. I wouldn't. Be, yeah, yeah. You might be right. That, that they, makes they sense. Say there was like these black dogs came to you know. Yeah, anyway. you might be right. Interesting, Robbie. Did you know that this is the first time we meet a crossroads demon in the show? Is that right? And that's why they have their red eyes. They're, the crossroads demons were famous uh, for having red eyes. Okay. Reportedly, as the myth goes, that's because they stayed out late. Oh, right. So they're always tuckered out. 
Right. And this right, is before right. Visine was a thing. You couldn't do what you used to right. do and just visine yourself into looking like you weren't, uh, you know, tore up from the floor up. You yeah. Know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, also, the legend of Robert Johnson is a favorite of Kripke's. It was the first screenplay he had ever attempted to write. What happened? He, he tried to write it and he got he got hit by a car. I bet he wrote it. And like, then, I feel like I feel like attempted to write is like I tried to write it, but then my hand broke. And then I tried again, and the pen ran out of ink. And then I tried again, and I just gave up. Maybe the Crossroads Demon was like, "Sorry, no, this is my story. I have rights to it. I'll make a deal with you. You write a great screenplay, and I'll take your soul." Uh, pass. <laughs> you know, this is something kind of funny that I wrote down in my notes. Um, first of all, there's a MySpace joke. That, and the MySpace joke in it is like, Dean doesn't know what MySpace is, so he's old. Oh, right. Yeah. Dean's old. He is yeah. Old. So, but it's like a joke. It's like a, it's like a, it's dated on dated, that joke. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's full circle. Yeah. <laughs> Metadated. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the other thing is there's a, a scene where Dean is kicking in doors and Sam stops him. He's like, hey, don't, you know, it's just open. He, it's kind of funny. The door's open. He doesn't need to kick it in. <laughs> Uh, without going too much into it, Jensen tells a really funny story that in real life at one point, he needed to get a door open that was his, he was like locked out of his hotel room or something like that. Do you remember that story? No. And he couldn't get into it and the hotel wasn't helping him. So he was like, well, he'll just kick it in like he does on the show. He's like, I've done this a million times. And he like goes and he kicks it and like nearly falls over because it's so incredibly hard to do. He's like, Come on, I'm, I play Dean Winchester. I can kick a door open. So he had to tr- truly kick a door open and he you know, court knocked him over. Had to have hip replacement surgery. Yeah, exactly. Hilarious. Well, uh, this was a fun episode. It was nice to get both those guys on. and uh, Great to have two so, guests, man. Two, yeah. two powerhouse guests. Yeah. Um, so thank you for listening. You're welcome, buddy. And thank you for talking. You're welcome. And also thanks to all of the people listening to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you all. It's been been great doing this for you. And I know you're enjoying it because I can tell by your smiles. And we want you to keep enjoying it. So please like us, follow us, and tell your friends about us. And remember, liking and following and listening is, as always, free. That's right. So uh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. This episode of Supernatural features Jared Padalecki as Sam Winchester and Jensen Ackles as Dean Winchester. Guest stars include Lamont Bird, John Lafayette, Jeanette Sousa, and Evan Hudson. Crossroad Blues was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Steve Boyum. Editing by Anthony Pinker. Music by Christopher Leonards. Executive produced by Eric Kripke and Robert Singer. The original broadcast of this episode featured the following songs. Crossroad Blues by, you guessed it, Robert Johnson. Downhearted Blues by Sunhouse. Key to the Highway by Little Walter. And Hair of the Dog by Nazareth. This episode originally aired on November 16th, 2006. This episode of Supernatural Then and Now was hosted and executive produced by Richard Spade Jr. and Rob Benedict. Produced by Stephen Hine. Written by Stephen Hine and Haida Holscher. And edited and associate produced by Trey Booty. What's up, Buddha? Music provided by Tim Wynn. The episode was recorded with the help of Sonic Fuel Studios. This podcast is from Story Mill Media. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at SPN Then and Now. They learn that after doing the deal with George the Demon, <laughs> George the Demon. <laughs> Which is coming to NBC this fall. <laughs> they learned that after doing the deal with George, the demon stuck around Lloyd's and did more deal. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> hold on. <laughs>
Hold on. We got a real shortage of commas here. <laughs> they, the brothers learned that Evan sold his... T- 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 the jo- the, uh. Here's an interesting question. Is this just a, a typo by Steve, or are demons considered to be male? Only because it says he does a deal to save Evan in exchange for him to release the demon. Oh, for Dean to release the demon. Yeah. Okay, so... It, okay, never mind. I misread it. Shockingly, I misread it. <laughs> well, uh, George the demon... <laughs> George the demon. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. You'll be possessed by laughter. <laughs> JC. I mean, JC. I just called you my wife's name. Rob. <laughs> there, there, we're going to unpack that later on. Kripke says, hey to all you guys. So, oh, good. Are, oh, that's nice. Are you up there doing the boys uh, right now? Uh, no, doing uh, Gen V. Gen V. Oh, Imagine yeah. His new show. That's yeah, awesome. great. Story Mill Media. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 